Heavenly Father, for centuries your people have been telling and proclaiming your story. The truth about your goodness in creation. The truth about the fall of Adam and Eve and all their descendants. The truth about your desire to not leave us dead in our sins, but to redeem us. The truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Redeemer. And this call that we will hear today to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn to you, and to walk in righteousness. Your story is a story of love. Your story is a story of hope. And your story this morning, I pray, as heard by us, will be one of great encouragement. Where we will want to know it better by your Spirit. We will want to examine our lives in the context of your story and we will want to eliminate every thought, every word, every action, every relationship that does not align itself with your great story. I ask that you be gracious with us this morning and do that for us, Father. Cause us to reflect deeply upon the death and resurrection of your Son. Cause us to remember the necessity of His sacrifice to save sinners like us. And then cause us even now to repent, to turn from those sins that still have us bound to be set free by You that we might love You rightly. I ask, Father, that You would use this passage, Your Word, Your Holy Word, to speak to us directly. And do what only you can do by your Spirit, and that's change us. Every soul is gathered here this morning to worship you. I hope with a deep desire to be transformed in the image of Christ. And so we ask that you would do that. Do it for our church. Do it for this community. Do it for your kingdom. And do it for your glory, I pray. Be kind to us now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Is God's story your story? Is God's story your story? On uh, Friday afternoon, I had a chance to spend some time with a, a homeless man who came on campus. He was looking for some help. And he spent about 30 minutes telling me his story. And he was originally from New York, and he made his way out to here, and he tried to get to Canada, and he was kicked out of Canada, and he wanted me to help him get out of the country. I said, well, I, I can't really help you with that. I said, I can help you with some things, but I don't think I can get you out of the country. Um, everyone has a story, and everyone operates on a larger story or a meta-narrative. And that meta-narrative that we believe, sometimes we call it a worldview or a philosophy, which was the traditional term, that worldview or that philosophy or that story shapes the way we live. In fact, it shapes everything about us, how we think, how we behave, how we feel, how we relate to others. And the funny thing is, everyone believes that their story is the right story. Otherwise, they wouldn't believe it. They would adopt something else. Everyone believes that what they believe is how the world works and how they're supposed to participate in it. For example, over the past few weeks with the Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe v. Wade, What people believe about the origin of life and the sanctity of life has been put on full display for the world to see. Those who believe that man is created in the image of God and all human life is sacred have sided with the Supreme Court of the United States and they are eager to see all 50 states pass laws making abortion illegal. For those who do not believe that life is sacred but negotiable, They have spoken out against the court's decision and they are fighting in places like California to make abortion sanctuaries. In other words, the story we live by and the worldview that we have embraced, it shapes everything about us. It shapes our worship, how we spend our time and money, how we love, how we die, and even how we view pre-born life. Everyone has a worldview. So if this arching, overarching view is what gives shape to how we live, the question is not, is there a meta-narrative or do you have a meta-narrative? The question is, what is that meta-narrative and is it true? What is the story by which you live? 
And does that story match reality? Isn't it in accordance with ultimate truth? And a second question that we're going to ask today by God's grace is, what is your part in that story? Where do you land? What role do you play? If you were here last week, we, we left Paul in Caesarea in mid-sentence. Literally, middle of his speech. He's standing before Governor Festus, and he's before King Agrippa, and Agrippa's sister Bernice, and the Jews who brought accusations. And he was, he was making a defense for all these false accusations the Jews had brought against him. The number one thing being his proclamation and belief in the resurrection of the dead, and that Jesus Christ was the Savior. So that's what they were really getting at here. But as we saw last week, and we'll finish up today, Paul was not terribly concerned about his own freedom, was he? He was interested in proclaiming the gospel message. He was interested in their freedom in Christ. And so what did, what did Paul do? He told a story. He told a story. And not just any story, but the story. He told the story of redemption. He told these people who did not know Christ the story of forgiveness he told these people about how Christ would suffer, how he did suffer, how he died and rose from the dead, that all those who put their faith in him might actually live. And he shared this story with the great hope that the apostle always had with all people is that they would turn, repent, believe, and be saved. The question for you this morning is the same question the apostle Paul posed before his audience 2,000 years ago. What story do you live by? What story do you believe is true? God's story or your story? What meta-narrative gives shape to your daily life and your daily decisions? And if you claim Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, does your life match the story? Does your personal story match God's story? And if not, then what do you need to do to change it? Those are some questions by God's grace, the passage will bring out. I hope that you have ears to hear. I'd like for us to hear God's story and I'd like for us to truly examine the story that we live by. Not the story that we hear and that we say yes, amen to, but the story that we live day in and day out by. What do you really believe? You want to know what you really believe? Have someone watch you for a week or a month or a year and they'll tell you what you really believe. They'll tell you what you really worship by your actions, not so much by your words. So let's do that today. I have two points for you. And they're very simple points. God's story and your story. God's story and your story. Let's look at God's story first with this being the theme for the sermon. When God's story becomes your story, you will live a faithful life. When God's story, his true redemptive story becomes your story, you will live, as a professing Christian, a faithful life. Point number one, God's story. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, O King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, Paul had just talked about how he saw Jesus, literally saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, um, how he had been forgiven of his sins, how he'd been made a son in the kingdom of God, and how Jesus himself, the Son of God, made him what? A servant and a witness, and a witness to go and tell people about Christ. And so he says to King Agrippa, listen, I'm, I wasn't disobedient to, to the calling. I, I didn't continue to kick against the goads. I got smart. God showed himself to me. And in his obedience, he said, I'm a changed man. And therefore, I'm standing here before you and Bernice and before Festus and all these people. And I'm telling you that Christ is real. That he is the Messiah. Paul then calls them to repent of their sins. To turn to God as he had. And to walk in righteousness. Look at, again at the latter part of verse 19. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 20. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So one of the first things we see about God's story is that it's for all people. Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, the Gentiles, near and far. And then he tells us in verse 22, it was for both the small and the great so the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, God's story is for all people. Now that's, uh, that's refreshing in light of our Western cultural moment. In our cultural moment, those people who are valued and can participate in the Western story of mankind have to have a certain intersectionality. 
Right? If you're going to have a voice, your gender, your skin color, your sexual orientation, your financial store, uh, standing will determine whether or not you can participate in the story. Not so with God's story. God's story includes all people. And it includes all people because all have sinned and what? Fall short, short of the glory of God. All people need to be saved and therefore God's story applies to all people. Amen? The second thing God's story tells us is that the message of the story is the same for all people. Paul says in verse 20, look, he said, this was his message, that they, those he was preaching to, should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So that term repentance is to confess your sins and turn away from your sin. And part of repentance is what? You turn away from sin and you turn to? You turn to God. You turn to God. And then by putting your faith in God, and specifically Christ as your Lord and Savior, you then you walk in righteousness. I like how Paul put it, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Not deeds to be saved, but deeds, good deeds, righteous acts in light of your salvation because now you're a child of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is at the very heart of the gospel message. See, in God's story, God created in the beginning the heavens and the earth and all living creatures, and it was good, there was no sin. But you know what happened with our great-great-great-grandparents. They sinned against God. They rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, and we inherited that sin. We inherited that sin, and we act upon that sin. But God, being infinitely gracious, said, I'm not going to leave man bound by his sin. Death, physical death and spiritual death, according to God, would not be the end of his story for mankind. Amen. Oh, my goodness, that's such good news for us. Filled with mercy and grace. God the Father calls people back to himself. The gospel message is a, is a calling back of rebellious, sinful people back to God. Out of his great love for fallen man, God calls us to turn away from our self-glorification, our self-idolatry, our self-centeredness, and to do what? To turn to him. To glorify him and to worship him because he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. God calls us to, to know him instead of rebel against him, to be loved by him instead of kicking against the goads. God calls us into this sweet intimacy and this sweet union, and that is the beautiful part about this story of God, that you're called to participate in love with him. So God's story is for all people. The message of God's story is the same for all people. Repent of your sins, turn to God, and walk in righteousness. And it's the same message For all time. Look at verse 21. Paul says, For this reason, for the message that he'd been proclaiming, repent, turn to God, and walk in holiness. Paul says, The Jews seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. Now Paul, when he was saying this, he must have been saying it with astonishment in his voice. I mean, he's talking to Jews. Every single Jew would say, it's right to confess your sins, to turn to God, and walk in righteousness. Every Jew would agree with that. And I would say every knowledgeable Gentile would agree with it as well. And so for any Jew to talk against Paul, Paul says it's absolutely nonsense. This is at the heart of our faith. Repentance, turning to God, and performing deeds in keeping with righteousness. It's the message. It has always been the message. From Genesis chapter 3, it hasn't changed. In fact, in Isaiah Isaiah 45, God said this, Who told you this long ago, speaking of the message? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? He said, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the Lord, for I am God and there is no other. It is the message and has always been the message. Look at verse 22. Paul says, to this day I have held that I have, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. In other words, he's saying, this isn't a new story, and it isn't a new gospel message, and it's not a new religion or a new sect. The very same message that Paul put into place, repent of your sins, turn to God, and walk in righteousness, he says, oh, by the way, Moses, the law, and the prophets, representing all the prophets in the Old Testament, have testified to the same truth for centuries. There's no dispute here. All people, same message for all people, same message for all time. In other words, God's story is being revealed here by the Apostle Paul in front of Agrippa and Festus and the Jews and Gentiles that had gathered. Nothing yet 
is even remotely controversial for those who knew anything about the Jewish faith. That is until he gets to the main character of the story of God. Everything's good up to this point in time. But then he starts talking about the means by which we can repent, the means by which God does forgive, the means by which we come into the family of God, and that's where Christ comes in, and that's where they stop hearing. They refuse to listen. Look at the latter part of verse 22. Paul says, I was saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What would come to pass? That the Christ, that term in, in the Hebrew would be Messiah, the Meshiach, the Jew, the Savior that they were expecting to come, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he says, so Moses and the prophets had been talking about this particular Savior for centuries, this particular Savior that you say you are looking for too. And in this Savior, according to God's story, he would do two things. One, he would suffer. He would come the first time as a suffering servant and he would suffer on behalf of the sins of God's people. And so as they were looking for a conquering king that would overthrow the, the yoke of Rome, Paul says, you know, if you know your scriptures, you know that he wasn't gonna come the first time like that. He was gonna come to serve. He was going to come to die as a ransom for many. Now they're hearing this and, and some of them might have been being drawn to certain Old Testament passages but they can't think clearly because they know Paul's talking about Christ and it can't be Christ. If this is true that the Messiah would suffer, it can't be Christ. They certainly would have drawn, been drawn back to Genesis chapter three. I mean right after the fall and the curse that takes place, God promises that a savior would come. He says this, Genesis 3.15, God now speaking, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he speaks of the Christ here, the Messiah, he, the Christ, shall bruise your head, speaking of Satan, gonna crush your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel, the Christ heel. In other words, the Christ would suffer. We know that from Genesis chapter three that Jesus was gonna suffer. But there's no clearer description of it than you you know from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, he, speaking of the Christ, was despised and rejected by men. A man of what? We had a chance to just sing it. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And by his wounds we are healed. The scriptures taught this. The Messiah, the true Messiah would come and he would suffer for the sins of his people. So their scriptures taught it and it also taught that this Messiah would not only suffer but then he would proclaim salvation as the appointed leader of God's people. Look at the latter part of verse 23. By being the first to rise from the dead, he, speaking of the Christ, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so not only did their Old Testament scriptures teach that the Christ would have to suffer, but the Old Testament scriptures were very clear that the Messiah would come and he would be the first one, he'd be the leader to come out of death and come into life. And that's why he can not only proclaim the light of life, eternal life to Jew and Gentile, he can do that, why? Because he rose from the dead Right, Darkness did not bind Christ. He was able to overcome that, rising from the dead. He can not only proclaim it, but we're told here by Paul, and I think they hated this the most, Paul says he's the leader. He's the champion. He is the one that can lead us out of sin and out of the grave and into the glory of God, into the forgiveness of God, into the family of God. No longer enslaved to sin, but now in Christ Sinners like us able to walk in righteousness and to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, speaking of Christ, in bringing many sons and daughters to what? To glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, I love that, that's a great word, the pioneer, the, the leader of their salvation. That's Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. And so this was always part of God's story. 
Even before man fell, even before God created anything, seen or unseen, it was part of God's story for Him to be glorified through the suffering, death, resurrection of His Son, and then His Son leading many sinners like us into eternal glory, out of the darkness and into the kingdom of God. It was this teaching that they hated. They agreed with Him up to this point in time. But identifying Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior, they hated it. I mean, how, how could a lowly carpenter from Nazareth, born of an illegitimate marriage, be the first to rise from the dead and then be the leader of God's people into glory? How could it be this man? They refused to believe it. Not because it was not true and not because their scriptures did not testify to it. They refused to believe it because they could not, it could not be Jesus. It could not be this man. And so they rejected him. They refused to enter into the light of Christ. This is God's story. The redemption of sinful man from the effects of the fall through the suffering, death, and resurrection of his sinless son, Jesus Christ. That's his story. That is the story. It's the story for all people. It's the same message for all people. It's the same message that has not changed from the beginning and will not change until Christ comes. It is Christ who is the leader of this great story. Now, most of you know, for those of you who read, that an author, when they write, it's their story. Right? They, when, before they sit down to pen the beginning and the end, the plot line, the characters, it belongs to them. The author owns the story. Well, we know and we believe that the story of creation, the true narrative of human history, belongs to its author, and that is the creator, and that is God. So this is God's story, therefore that means what? The characters are his, the plot line is his, the beginning is his, the end is his, and the Savior is his. It's his story. Now, you wouldn't go and, and buy a book and then you know, change the story and then send it back out to the publisher. If you did, they'd probably laugh at you, even if the story was really bad. You'd say, I can rewrite this and make it better. Well, there's no better story than the story of God, and we have, as his creatures, no authority to rewrite his story. You have no right to rewrite his story. That in and of itself is sinful. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do in the garden, right? They tried to rewrite the story of God to be like God instead of submitting to God. It is a story. It is a story that magnifies who God is. Right? His mercy and His grace in sending His sinless Son to die on a cross to save sinners like us. It is a story that magnifies His goodness and His justice, pouring out His wrath on Christ on the cross to pay for our sins and punishing all those who refuse to be saved, all those who say, we will write our own story, we will not live by your story, and therefore we will be judged. It is a story that highlights Jesus Christ. It magnifies His glory as not only the one who suffered, died, and rose from the dead, but the one who would lead millions into the glory of God, into the kingdom of God. My beloved, it is a true story. It is a beautiful story. It is a love story. Above all else, with God as the author and God as the lover and you being called in Christ to be the beloved, for you to come in to this great story of redemption by God to know God and to be loved by God and to experience God as your Father and King and Savior. All of the stories about creation, about man, about universe, every single one is a myth. They're not true. Now you can say, wait, wait a minute, I, I hear lots of stories about where the world came from and why people are here and where we're going. True, especially today, especially in this area. You're saying to me, Pastor, everyone's a lie. Every single one is a lie. Only God's story is true. Only God's story is true. And that means that if God's story is the only true story, then God's story determines what is real. God's story frames reality. Any story outside of God's story now enters into myth, into fantasy land, 
And we love to go there today in the cultural moment into virtual reality. Virtual reality is not reality, my beloved. Every man, every woman, and every child, therefore, lives in one of two narratives. Either God's story or a story made up by man. Either God's story which is true or a story made up by man which we know by definition must be false. They both can't be true at the same time. Most people still adhere to the law of non-contradiction. We won't do it. If God exists, then by definition we must say it is false to believe that God does not exist. If God's story is real and God's story is true, then by definition we must say all other stories that contradict God's story must be false. So the question for you, going to my second point, is what story are you living in right now? I mean, most Christians gathered in churches today, most Christians in evangelical churches, I guess, would affirm God's story. We'd say, yes, amen. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. Walk in righteousness. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the leader. Of course, we'd say, yes, amen to that. And then we'll walk out that door and we'll live a different story. So let's ask question number two or point number two. What is your story? Look at verse 24. And as he, speaking of Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. It's emphatic in the Greek. It's emphasized twice. Paul highlights the climax of the story being the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ being the Savior. And that, Festus isn't even Jewish. And it pushes him right over the edge. Whatever calmness there was at that moment in the room, Festus explodes with emotion. And it says that he said with a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. You lost touch with reality, Paul. Too much time in the ivory tower. Too much time in your books. Festus is saying, do you know what you're saying, Paul? You're saying dead people can live. And Festus is saying dead people remain dead. True or false? Which one? Verse 25, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Oh, there's so much to talk about here about emotional responses, right? Festus is not thinking. He's, he's bothered. He's agitated. Paul is so cool and calm, full in love and honor. He says, oh, Festus, most excellent Festus, I have the truth. He's speaking truth. He possesses that, and he speaks as a man who possesses it. And he says, everything I've said thus far is true. My conversion experience on the road to Damascus, my being forgiven of sins and granted access into the kingdom of God as a son, my being called, Paul says, as a servant, as a witness to Jesus Christ. He said the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Christ, this call for all people to come to him. He said it's all true. And, and Paul saying this, not only is it true historically that all these things happened, and they did happen, but he's saying they're not only true, but they're rational. He said, well, how can he say that? Well, my beloved, he just got done testifying the fact that Moses and the prophets have been testifying to this same story for centuries. This is not out of the blue. It's not an aberration. It's not a strange teaching. It's historically grounded in centuries of prophetic utterance in God's word. True and rational. What are you going to do with it, Festus? What are you going to do with it? Paul and Festus could not both be right. Right? We must conclude one of two things. They were both wrong, possible. They were both wrong, or one was right, and therefore the other was wrong. Now, my beloved, I would argue that's the case for each of us. If God's story is real, and our story does not align with God's story, then we both can't be right. And I'm going to tell you in love right now, God is never wrong. If your story does not align itself with God's story, it's not God's story that's the problem. It's your story. Right? God's story defines truth. God's story defines reality. So if God in this story says, I am holy and I will punish every sin, but in our story we say things like, well, it's not that big of a deal if I sin. I take sin lightly. Or we say to ourselves, because God is love, in the end, 
he will not punish sin. Well, that, that makes our story a lie, and I would argue puts you in grave danger. If God in his story says, I will grant forgiveness to all who repent and put their faith in my son, but we in our story think that somehow we can achieve the forgiveness for our sins by doing good to others or reading our Bibles daily or faithfully being in church or ministry, then your story is a lie and you are in grave danger. If God says in his story, I will come like a thief in the night, I am coming soon, be ready. But in our story, we think we have plenty of time, plenty of time to be saved ourselves if we have yet to repent and believe. Plenty of time to share the gospel with the loved ones in our lives. Plenty of time to stop engaging in that grievous sin because he's not coming yet. If you believe that, then your story is a lie and you are in grave danger. If God's story is true, then whenever we attempt to live in a manner that is contrary to his story as clearly revealed in his word, we are in rebellion and we must know in those moments we are in grave, grave danger. It's no small matter to go against the narrative of God. He is the author. You can't take a pen and simply scratch out paragraphs that you don't like. It's his story. He defines reality. So Paul turns to Agrippa both to aid, I think, his case and to bring the gospel to bear on the Jewish king. Paul really wants Agrippa saved. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, but he's just focused on this. Now look at verse 26. Paul says, For the king knows, he's speaking to Agrippa, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter. Speaking of the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. So King Agrippa was also, you may not know this, he was appointed guardian of the temple, which means it was his responsibility to appoint the high priest. So Agrippa was very familiar with the practices that surrounded the Jewish faith and the temple worship. He, he knew about their belief in the resurrection of the dead. That would have been known to him. He knew that the scriptures taught Moses and the prophecies taught about the suffering of this particular Messiah. He would have rightly understood, I do believe, the connection that Paul was making, that Jesus Christ was that Messiah. And he would have known something, if not much, about this Christian faith. It was happening in his backyard. Right? Paul says, he reminds him of it in verse 26. None of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter. Every single major event surrounding Jesus Christ and the expansion of our faith happened in public. It wasn't like a, a sixth century prophet hearing something in a cave. This happened in public. It happened in the, in the capital city of Jerusalem before Pontius Pilate, before Agrippa's uncle Herod and the Sanhedrin. It happened and Christ through his resurrection appeared to 500 eyewitnesses. In other words, Jesus had become a national figure People knew his name. They knew the faith. And as the gospel spread throughout Agrippa's region, Judea, Judea, Samaria, Asia, Europe, as the church grew, it had all taken place in plain view. And so Agrippa knew. And Paul says, you know. You know you've heard. Agrippa very likely had talked to people who had saw, who had seen the risen Christ. And so Paul, desperate for Agrippa's soul, look what he does in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's Jewish. Can't say no. Do you believe the prophets? He says, I know you believe. Now, Paul's not trying to perform some Jedi mind trick on Agrippa, saying, I know you believe to get him to believe. He's calling Agrippa to examine his faith. He's saying, you're a Jew. You know the Old Testament. You know the prophecies. You know what the prophets said about the Messiah. You know it matches Christ. He suffered, he died, he rose. You know this. He's calling him to examine his story. He's saying, I just told you the real story of God. Now examine your own story. And if it doesn't line up, what does he want Agrippa to do? He wants him to repent of his sins and turn to God. He wants Agrippa to be saved. He's saying, Agrippa, it's reasonable. And it was a reasonable question. If Agrippa's going to believe in the prophecies, and the prophecies pointed to Christ, then it was reasonable to what? To believe in Christ. 
Right? Paul's making perfect sense here. Not only did Paul argue this, but this idea of God's people being redeemed through a ransom like this, this was steeped in Jewish culture. Sandra Richter, she wrote this in her book, The Epic of Eden. Listen, she's talking about how this would have been expected of a savior for the Jewish people. She said, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of a patriarch, a father, who put his own resources on the line to ransom, listen, a family member who had been driven to the margins of society by poverty, who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had no defense, or who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kingship circle, the kinship circle. Now, so that's, that's exactly what he grew up with, a King Agrippa. So the redemption of sinful man was the act of the supreme patriarch, God the Father, who put his own son, what, on the line, not just to ransom one, but to ransom an entire family to himself, to gain an entire family, a people who had truly been driven into poverty by sin, a people who had truly been seized by man's enemy, the devil, a people who had been enslaved by the consequences of a sinful, faithless life. Jesus was sent to accomplish that, to redeem a people for God's glory. Out of the darkness and into the light and into the family of God, into the circle of God, that is God's glorious story. And so Agrippa is pressed on all sides here. History's against him, reasons against him, cultures against him, everything is revealing that what Paul said was true. So what does Agrippa do? Does he believe? Look at verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, this is said sarcastically, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? You think with these few words, Paul, that I'm going to capitulate and I'm just now going to follow you? You want me to change my story right now? And Paul says in verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul says, I, it doesn't, it's not important to me how long it takes, Agrippa. I just want you to be saved. I want you and everyone listening, and he probably took his hand and he waved to the entire gathering. I want everyone here to truly repent of their sins, turn to God, and be saved in Christ and walk in righteousness. That is the message. That is the story. And so God wants Paul wants their eyes to be opened as his eyes had been opened. Verse 30, Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were, who were sitting with them. Agrippa had had enough. He said, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. He's convicted. He's out. Right? There's the door. I'm leaving. Verse 31, And when they had withdrawn, so they're outside of the, the gathering now. They said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Verse 32, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, so the, this historic gathering, and it was in the book of Acts, this historic gathering with King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and the others, it, it draws to a conclusion. And they rightly conclude, Paul does not deserve to be punished. He doesn't deserve to die. And if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, it's a, it, once that process started, it was hard to get out of. He said he could go free right now. But the end of this gathering was not the end of the story for every single person that was present there. They, they may have left, and many of them didn't really, really did not know what the resolution was going to be, but they had heard Paul preach the truth. They had heard the gospel. They had heard God's story on display. And so every single person in that room had to evaluate, is my story right? Is the meta-narrative that I'm living by true? Or am I living a lie? And is my end destruction? The truth of God had been proclaimed. The gospel had been preached. And Jesus Christ had been revealed to all present as the one Moses and the prophets had spoken of. The long-awaited Jewish Messiah who did suffer, who did die, who did rise, and who has and will continue to lead millions and millions into glory, into the glory of God. So the question before all those is the same question before you. Maybe you have wrestled with it. 
maybe you're still wrestling with it, is this story really true? And it's one thing, my beloved, to claim Christ, to get baptized and join a church, but do you really, really believe this narrative that God did, in fact, through the death and resurrection of his son, save sinners like us? Did he do that? Is he doing that? Do you really believe that? That through the death and resurrection of God's perfect, sinless son, he saves sinners like us who make us sons and daughters of his? Or are you, are you more like Festus? You hear this, and you, you may say you believe it, but in your heart of hearts you're thinking, Paul is a madman. Paul's crazy. I mean, dead people don't rise. I've been to the cemetery. I've been to the funeral. They don't rise. Never seen it happen. Are you more like Festus in your heart of hearts, thinking maybe Paul was just a fanatic because he wanted to be raised from the dead? It's, it's wishful thinking. Festus rejected God's story outright, said it's not true. Paul, speaking on behalf of God, Paul, you're mad. You're mad. Agrippa, uh, he's brought face to face with truth. And I, I, I think there's a sense here in the story that he is, there's conviction there, right? The prophecy spoke to it. History spoke to it. He knew better. All done in public. And what does he do? He exits right away. I got to get out of here. He didn't believe He answers Paul with sarcasm and he flees. But Paul here, he stands as the model for you. He saw Christ. He heard the message. He believed. He was forgiven. And he found a place in God's story. Listen with all your might. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul found a place in God's story. Not as a sinner condemned to judgment, but as a son redeemed for glory. Paul understood God's story to be true. And through Jesus Christ, he found a place in it. Rejection, evasion, or faith? Now I'm going to close. What about you? I'm assuming you haven't rejected because you're, you're here now. As of right now, you probably have not rejected. But maybe Agrippa is more true than you'd like to admit. Right? He evaded it. He knew it to be true. He knew the story was there, but he did, his, his life, his story didn't match, so he didn't want to, to press into it. Or maybe it's Paul, and I pray so. I pray so, you know, no, no I, I do, Pastor. God has convinced me through Christ that this is the meta narrative. This is God's story. I am redeemed. I am in the kingdom of God. Praise God for that. If you say, I am like Paul, God's story has become my story. There are two qualifiers attached to that here, and I, and I hope they apply to you. The first one would be back in verse 20. That is a compelling passage, compelling verse. If you have truly repented and turned to God, if you truly have, if, your story, if God's story has become your story, then you will look at the latter part of verse 20. You'll perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. You will. We always do, and for centuries, we do this weird dialogue about grace and works, right? Saved by grace and works, saved by grace to do works. The dialogue's been very strange to me. Read through the scriptures, read through the New Testament, it's really clear. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and in your saved state, you will what? You will exercise deeds of righteousness. You'll walk in righteousness. Your life will not be contaminated by sin, and when you sin, you will turn immediately, confess it, and walk in righteousness, funny how we like to make dichotomies that do not exist. Probably just to appease our conscience, I would imagine. If you have truly repented and you truly turned to God, if God's story is your story in Christ, then you can say, by God's grace, you are performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. That you are. Remember when, remember when the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out to see John the Baptist at the Jordan? Do you remember And he says to them in love, you brood of vipers, that's great, hello, welcome, you brood of vipers. He says, who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And then he says what? What does he say, do you remember? He said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Perform deeds, exercise righteousness, do the work of God in keeping with your repentance. If you've truly repented and you've truly turned, my beloved, then your life will truly be different. You can't stay in the sin 
You can't live there and remain there and be happy with your new heart and your new life and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You can't do it. God sanctifies us day by day over our entire life. I'm not calling you to sinlessness and perfection now. It's a process. But there better be a process. If you look back and say, I'm no different. In fact, I'm worse. Well, that's not good. That means your repentance and your turning likely was not real. Not real. Second thing that I want to draw out, if your repentance and your turning is real, you'll be passionate about telling God's story. You'll be passionate about telling the story of redemption. It is such a great story. And it is meant to be told. Because someone told you and when you heard it, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit enabled you to believe you were not like Festus and you were not like Agrippa. You were like Paul and you said, yes, that's it. My whole life I've been waiting to hear that story. That's it. And God enabled you to repent and turn and be saved. Look at the latter part of verse 26 again. Listen to the boldness now of Paul speaking to a king. He says, For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, speaking of Agrippa. For this has not been done in a quarter. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, oh, that we would speak so boldly to the lost in our lives. Tell them the gospel. Tell them the prophecies. Tell them about the historicity of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And then ask them, do you believe? Do you believe? Use your reasoning skills. Use the prophecies. Use the historical truths. It is a reasonable story. It is a true story. And it is a good, good story. Is it not? Is there any better story you could tell someone? Then, oh, by the way, sinner, there's, a hope, there's hope for you. You can rede- be redeemed out of your sin and out of the darkness and be brought into the presence of God to know him and worship him and be loved by him for how long? Forever. That's a great story. Oh, and when you heard it the first time, And when the Spirit enabled you to believe, did your heart not leap inside of you? Were you not filled with joy? And and, and you question, could this be true? Could this good story truly be true? And could I participate in it, not to be judged, but to be saved? It is true, and it is that good to put our faith in the first man to rise from the dead and follow him into glory. And we want that for all the people that we know, don't we? Every single person you know. I would say even that person that you don't care for much, that next door neighbor who drives you crazy in your heart of hearts, you want them to know Christ. You want them to follow Christ into glory. The story of our time is so ugly, my beloved. We live in a particular moment where the story is particularly ugly. And when I mean that, it's abusive towards God and it's abusive towards people. When we teach our children that there is no God or God is whoever or whatever you want him to be, the story gets ugly fast. We teach our children individual determinism. We say to them, you are what you say you are. Whatever you think you are is what you are. We teach them individual gratification. Do whatever you want to do to make yourself happy. We teach them subjective self-worth. We tell them you are lovable because you are smart or you're worthy because you're attractive or you're good because you do good things. My beloved, this inward bent, this story that we live in and this story that we teach is so perverse. We say purpose and gratification and self-worth is all defined by the person. Is it any wonder that an 18-year-old climbs a rooftop and kills people on the 4th of July when that's the story? Should we be shocked by that? Not at all. If you take a sinner and you fill their head with individual determination and individual gratification and self-worth not based upon God, this will happen again and again and again. This is the story of the culture. It is a story of sin and death and it should break our hearts that they don't know or they don't believe the real story of God. But if we have the heart of Paul, will we not seek to tell them Will we not go to them and say, listen, the story that you've embraced, the story that you're living is a really bad story and it ends in destruction. There's a better story, a true story that ends much better. We will tell them that no man is self-determined, but that every man is made in the image of God, made to worship God, to serve God, to love and to be loved by God 
we would tell them that's your role in the story as someone created in God's image. We would tell them that self-gratification is a dead end because man was made to find his greatest joy and his ultimate satisfaction in God alone, in Christ the Son. You will never be satisfied, we can tell them. Your story is a dead end before it begins because you were made to be satisfied by God. We will tell them that self-worth and self-esteem that we push and we push, it's a devilish lie. Self-worth and self-esteem for the sinner has no place in God's story. Our worth and our value comes from God because one, we're made in his image, and number two, we've been redeemed, the Savior, those who have put their faith in Christ have been redeemed and therefore we have the righteousness of the Son. That's our worth as image bearers in Jesus. My beloved, God's story is the only true story. All the stories are myths. All the stories are lies. I want to encourage you today, before this passage and this message loses its resonance, today, examine the story that guides your life and ask God to be gracious with you. Ask him to reveal all those thoughts and all those words all those relationships or plans or desires that have no place in his redemptive story. Say, God, show me where my story doesn't match yours. Show me where my life doesn't align with your word. Show me where I continue to sin and rebel against you and destroy that. It's a bad story, my beloved. I know we think it's good because sin is pleasurable for a season. It is a bad story. Your story that's not God's story is a bad story and it's dangerous for you. Confess that to God. Turn to God. Walk in righteousness. And then, out of your great love for Jesus Christ and the saving grace that he brought to you through the cross, tell others of this cosmic love story. Tell others. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your coworkers how God, out of his great love for sinful man, sent his beloved son to pay the price so that we could be saved. So that we, what? Could be loved by God now and forever. Tell the story, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that the story of redemption through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to come back into a right relationship with you. You created us in the beginning to know you, to worship you, to glorify you, to enjoy and be enjoyed by you. And we made a mess of it through sin, but you did not leave us dead. You sent Christ to bring us back, to turn from our sins, to come back to you. I pray, Father, that you would bless my brothers and sisters, every soul here, with a right examination of the story in which they live. Whatever meta-narrative they have slapped onto yours, I pray they would examine it in great detail and they would take out, they would confess, and they would destroy any part of their story that does not align itself with you and your word. I pray, Lord, you would do that for our sake, for our church, for our impact here in this community. And then I pray, Lord, that you would open our mouths and loosen our tongues that we might tell others of the great story of Jesus Christ that we might tell others of this love story that they are being invited into. Father, do that through us. If we don't tell the story, who will? Moses spoke to it. The prophets spoke to it. Christ spoke to it. Make us fall in line with their model, Lord. Let us be truth tellers, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.